Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Delgado Podcast. We're honored to learn from Dr. Terry Daniel, who serves as an interfaith hospice chaplain, end-of-life educator, and grief counselor certified in death, dying, and bereavement. She's also an adjunct instructor in thanatology and chaplaincy at Marion University, the University of Maryland, and the Graduate Theological Union. Dr. Daniel is also the founder of the Conference on Death, Grief, and Belief, and the host of the podcast entitled Ask Dr. Death. Her work has impacted countless individuals, including hospice professionals, counselors, and theologians worldwide. Terry's also authored four books on death, grief, and the afterlife. Dr. Daniel, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to this. So is there anything in that brief overview, you've done so much that I should also mention or people that should know about you and your work? Well, right now, um, it's important to me that people know about the conference, the Conference on Death, Grief, and Belief, which is coming up July 7th and 8th, 2023. It's going to be virtual online. And the website for that is deathgriefandbelief.com. And that might be a good place to start this conversation because I actually started that conference in 2010. Mm-hmm. It's now 2023. And it used to be called the Afterlife Conference. And it was all about research on near-death experience and deathbed visions and mystical uh, uh, encounters that happened around death and grief. And we had all the big speakers from the near-death research world back in those days, you know, Raymond Moody and Eben Alexander and all those guys. And I did that for 10 years. And during that 10 years, I was also in school working on my doctorate in pastoral care and also training and then becoming a hospice chaplain, non-religious, aka interfaith, but I call it non-religious. And I was beginning to see the way toxic theology impacts people's relationship with death and grief. And long story short, because of what I was experiencing and researching, I actually changed the focus of the conference from being the afterlife conference to now focusing on toxic theology and religious trauma in the context of death and grief. So that's why it's now the con- uh, the conference on death, grief, and belief. So that's just one thing that I thought I'd interject here before we go. Yeah, on. yeah, that that's amazing. Um, so when you were conceiving of this conference, um, what were some of the things that were going in your mind for topics that you really wanted to focus on and then bring in speakers to able to address? Um, I knew, uh, well, I had just finished my doctoral dissertation, which was called Toxic Theology as a Contributing Factor in Complicated Grief. And so there is a thing called complicated grief. It's actually a, a, a psychological diagnosis in the DSM, DSM-5, it was added, and it's changed now. It's now called prolonged mourning disorder or prolonged grief disorder. And that is a legitimate diagnosable thing. And what I was starting to see in my work in chaplaincy and in the groups and the workshops and everything that I was doing is that a lot of people were suffering from this complicated grief, prolonged mourning disorder because of their religious beliefs. So, for example, if you have a loved one who died by suicide and you have a belief that all suicides go to hell, 
your grief trajectory is going to be very different from someone who doesn't have that belief. And so not only are you having to grieve the loss of that person, but you actually have to, you know, grapple with the idea that they're burning in hell forever and you're not going to see them in the afterlife because you're not going to hell and they are. I mean, these are really bad ideas. This is bad theology and it makes grief more difficult. So those were the kinds of topics I was thinking about, and I already was starting to get involved in the world of atheist podcasting and um, atheist leaders in the field. And so I brought a lot of them in uh, at the first conference we had in this format. We had Seth Andrews uh, from the Thinking Atheists and uh, Frank Feldman and Dan Beecher from Thank God I'm Atheist. So I really, I wanted to reach out to the atheist community. But I didn't want to let go of the spiritual but not religious community necessarily either, because I personally am still kind of spiritual. I don't reject that the idea that there are other dimensions of consciousness. And so I also discovered in this process that there is an atheist purity test, according to some people, where that, you know, the definition of atheism is you don't believe in any god or gods. Okay, I qualify for that. But some people say that the definition is that you're 100% materialist, empiricist, and there's nothing other than physical matter. And I, I don't qualify on that front. So that's a whole interesting discussion in itself. Like, if we reject our religious beliefs, do we also reject all metaphysics and spiritual beliefs? That's the discussion. It's so interesting that you're bringing together like these two worlds of people who are atheist um, and talking about death and dying, and then also bringing in those who have more of a spiritual idea of death and the afterlife. How how did you manage to bring these two very distinct groups together? I don't know. I just did. <laughs> I mean, we had at this conference this first maiden voyage of this form of the conference, I had the atheist uh, thought leaders that I mentioned. And I also had a shaman uh, who was talking about shamanic practices for processing trauma. Uh, I had Andrew Jasko, who is a therapist who helps people with religious trauma, but also uses processes like guided visualizations and meditation. Mm and uh, ritual therapy and things like that, that are kind of metaphysical. So I just threw them all together and it worked out great. I mean, it wasn't a huge group. There was about 125 people. It was very small, but Seth Andrews wrote uh, on his blog afterwards, and he's pretty hardcore died in the wool materialist atheist that he loved being among all these other people. And he actually was able to engage and learn from them. And we all got along beautifully, mm. which I knew we would. And so that's kind of how I'm keeping it going forward is I want all those voices to be recognized. What you're not going to see at my conference is an evangelical Christian preaching their position because we've got, you know, um, religious trauma and, you know, deconstruction is a really big part of it. And we've got people in the audience who would be severely triggered by somebody going up there preaching, you know, so we don't, we're not, that's not going to be part of the conference. We're trying to get away from that. Well, it sounds like you brought together like a beautiful collection of different voices with different perspectives that are all 
have the same goal of how do we help process this and how do we help others um, go through grief, go through trauma, um, and what's a way to heal. So it's beautiful that you, you've done this. Um, I want to go back to something you just mentioned, and that is around uh, complicated grief and really connected mm -hmm. to religious beliefs that could be very, very toxic, right? And very, very harmful to us. Because when you are experiencing um, a friend, a loved one who has died and your particular religious belief um, is maybe triggering you to be very, very distressed because of what you believe about that particular death, where that person may be in the afterlife, um, that's impacting you on multiple levels, right? It's impacting you because you've lost someone you love. It's impacting you because of your religious belief system. And it can also be impacting your even definition of who this God is. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Oh, that, that's so many things that you just unpacked there. Let's, I'll start at the end and work backwards. So impacting your definition of what God is, I would not say who God is, but what God is, is, you know, that's a spiritual crisis. That's the dark night of the soul. That's a crisis of faith. And here's what happened. So I'm going to go back to your child and you're raised in a, you know, typical American Protestant Christian world and you go to Sunday school and you start getting all the Bible stories and you're given this theology when you're three years old and you just grow up with it and you never really think about it again. Most people don't. You just grow up with it. You go, yeah, it's Easter. Jesus is risen. You know, all this. You kind of know that it's sort of crap, but you don't care because it's what your culture does and we do it. It doesn't get questioned for most people. This isn't true for everybody, but until something happens. So now you grow up and now you're 45 and your child dies or you get early onset dementia at 45 or something terrible happens. And that's when you start to question. So that's the first thing that happens. And when you question in that scenario, you have two options. One is to hold on to the theology and hold on to the faith and try to make the circumstances fit the theology. Or the other option is to ditch the theology. And really those are the only two options. And when you ditch the theology, you can replace it with something new. You can reach out, you can study, you can read books and listen to podcasts and seek out teachers and learn about different ways of understanding the cosmos and human experience and then start cherry picking, putting things, get a little bit over here from Buddhism, a little bit over here from Native American theology and rebuild something. Or you can just stay in the original, uh, also known as embedded or inherited theology and then try to make this work. Well, like, why did I get Alzheimer's at 45? I was a good person. I was a good Christian. Um, God must be punishing me. What did I do wrong? Or, and so in that way, you're trying to stay in the inside the theology, make it stick. Or uh, somebody close to you got really sick and died. Say a child has cancer. Everybody in your church was praying. Everybody was around the bedside praying fervently. We're all good, devoted Christians. We prayed and prayed. We did everything we were supposed to do. Why weren't our prayers answered? Again, you're grappling with it from within the theological construct, and you're never going to have an answer with that. 
And the answer that most people come away with is we must, we're, we're probably being punished for something. We must have done something wrong. God wasn't pleased with us or our faith wasn't strong enough. We failed God because if we were pleasing God, God would have listened to us and the child wouldn't have died. An example, there's a, a movie that just came out on Netflix or Amazon or something called uh, A Wing and a Prayer. And it just came out with Dennis Quaid and supposedly it's a, a true story about this family that was flying a private plane and it was going to crash, but the dad remarkably flew the plane and got it to land safely. And it, it's basically a, an evangelical movie. And, the, you know, the subtext is they were all praying and they were all really devoted Christians. And that's why they were saved. And it's I mean, that is such toxic theology, because every person who's ever mm -hmm. been on a plane that was about to crash was praying. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Oh, well. <laughs> you know, absolutely. So why did it work for these people? And not for how many hundred thousands and thousands and thousands of people over time have died in plane crashes or train crashes or anything? So. So that's toxic theology. Yeah. I, I, you know, in your work as an interfaith chaplain, I mean, you're encountering people all the time that are coming to you with different religious backgrounds, different systems of belief. And many, many of them are coming maybe from a, um, a theological background that is toxic in these cases. And it adds just so much more to the grief, to their mourning. And I'm curious, like, as you are kind of counseling these folks, these people who are in pain, both for the the loss of their loved one and also, like, maybe the loss of their faith at the same time, like, it's not, this is not what I thought was supposed to happen. Um, how do you begin to uh, listen and when they're asking you for how they should kind of move through this, these different stages? Um what kind of where do you start i guess with with chatting with them it's a great question and that's when i take off my academic hat and put on my chaplain hat which is a completely different approach so everything i've been saying to you so far i would never say to a hospice client so um the way we are trained as chaplains is to leave our personal beliefs at the door never bring that into the room with the patient or client and even if they have the worst theology in the world according to you uh it doesn't matter you meet them where they are and i've encountered some pretty weird ones um one of my favorite stories is a man who was just given a, a very serious terminal diagnosis three months to live and he called for the chaplain this was in a hospital where i work and he asked me where do you think muslims and buddhists go when they die <laughs> i was like well, that's an interesting question. Why would you ask me that? Perfect chaplain answer. Never answer a question like that. It doesn't matter what I think. And that was my answer. It doesn't matter what I think. What do you think? Why are you asking me that? And he said, well, because they're all going to hell because they believe in false gods. And now that I'm going to die, I want to make sure that I'm not in hell with them because I'm afraid that I'm going to hell. So he was presenting me with some really shitty theology. And I had to keep my judgments to myself. I'm not there to teach him or educate him. I'm there to just support him in his suffering. And so what I did with him, and I use this as an example in all my classes that I teach, is like, well, you know, 
let's not talk about any of that right now. I just want to know why you're thinking about this. And it turns out that he's feeling guilty about sins that he's done in his life and wondering if he's going to go to hell. And so based on his way of thinking and his window on the world, he's throwing the Buddhists and the Muslims and everybody else in there with him. And he's saying, I just don't want to be with those bad people in hell. But what he's really saying is, I just don't want to be in hell. So as a chaplain, you just put it back to them and what their need is. And so, you know, I might spend a whole day having conversations like this with people as a chaplain. And then when I go home at the end of the day, I'm writing a paper about toxic theology. So it's mm. two different hats very clearly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's amazing how you're able to go back and forth between kind of the interfaith religious context to support those who are dying or grieving and then you know, heading home to then academically be thinking about these topics in a very, very deep way. Um, and in one of your papers that I was studying, you talk about how important it is for uh, those who are working with those who are grieving, especially like therapists, psychologists, uh, grief counselors, to be familiar with um, Fowler stages of faith, as well as um, Underhill stages of mystical development. Can you talk a little bit about how those two frameworks have been helpful for you uh, when working with people who are grieving? Yeah, thank you for bringing those up. Um, I didn't learn about Fowler until I was in my doctoral program in seminary. No, that's not true. I actually learned about it way before that. I don't know why I think that. Um, but Fowler, for people who don't know, um, you probably know about, you know, the psychologists and researchers who mapped out the stages of cognitive development, like at age two, you're able to think this way and discern this and that. And then at age seven, it's like this. And then at 14, it's like that. This has been around in psychology for a long time, these stages. And what Fowler did is he applied those developmental processes and milestones. He applied it to understanding of the divine. And it was very controversial. And basically what he came up with is, you know, there's a certain kind of understanding that you have of, quote, God when you're three, um, which is very fantasy based. Or if you, you can tell children, a three-year-old anything, you know, you can tell them that elephants can fly and puppies can talk and, and they just believe whatever you tell them. Um, and around six, they start to question a little bit because they realize that elephants can't fly and puppies can't talk. And they start to wonder, like, well, you know, um, what age do you start asking if, you know, if Adam and Eve were the only people on Earth? Wait, what's the question that the kids always ask? Um, oh, yeah, how do they have kids? So much. Yeah, well, like if they're the only they human. Kids, how did, how like, where kids? did all the people come from? Yeah, right. After yeah. their kids. That's what yeah. it is. If, if Cain and Abel, and actually really only Abel, because Cain went away to the land of Nod, uh, yeah, to the land of Nod, where did the rest of them come from? I mean, a seven-year-old will actually ask this question. Um, so anyway, you start discerning when you're at that age. And so he identified all these stages all the way up through adulthood, where you might have that crisis of faith and say, you know what? Uh, the you know, physical resurrection of Christ is not possible. Virgin birth is not possible. And you start to question, or prayer doesn't work, or whatever the thing is. So that's what Fowler did. Um, and that's really helpful for me in chaplaincy, because when I'm talking to a client, I can see where they fall on that scale. 
And the critique by religious people of that, they don't like that it's presented as stages. They don't like that it's evolutionary where it says, first you start out in this three-year-old infantile mentality and you grow up and mature to the questioning and reconstruction mentality. They hate that idea because it mm. suggests that the mature reconstruction phase is better in the mm. infantile phase. And so I've, I've presented this at the American Academy of Religion, and this was the feedback that I got from some of the mm. religious scholars. It's like, well, are you saying that it's better, you know, to 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 question this? I mean, what what if the three-year-old child is right? What if there really are miracles and Jesus really did physically resurrect? We don't know for sure. That's their argument. So that's Fowler. Um, Evelyn Underhill was a Christian mystic. And what she came up with is also sort of stages um, where how do we develop as mystics and what are the, pro you know, how do we learn, assuming we are open and we're not constricted by doctrine, how do we over time shed all those constrictions and, and human limitations? And, and this is really the essential what Buddhism is and go to transcendence where the ultimate goal is to, you know, what she calls mystical union with the divine, is the goal is to become more and more and more united with divine energy, whatever that is. And that's part of the human experience. And what I love about that is it speaks to the Exodus story. It just so happens that today is the day after Easter Sunday and Passover. So um, this is really timely. Um, the Exodus story, as every scholar knows, is not historic and it's not literal. It did not happen in recorded history. It is a myth. And the myth is about the thing that Evelyn Underhill is talking about. It's so it's the story is you start out in, as a slave. You're enslaved to the ego. You're enslaved to mm. the physical body. You know, you're born from purity in the world of spirit or whatever, but here we are humans and we're just, we're in chains because we're enslaved by things like the need for food, clothing, and shelter, you know, I mean, just all the stuff that the, the body needs. And so through the course of our lifetime, which would have been a 40 year lifespan in those days, because people didn't live much longer than that, you're wandering aimlessly looking for your way back home to the promised land which is a return to mystical union with the divine. That's what the Exodus story is really about. So that's what uh, Evelyn Underhill was talking about. So, you know, I would love nothing more than to conduct a Passover Seder using this story. And I'm sure there are people who do that out there. Mm. As you are, I love how you, um, you started off talking about using Fowler to kind of, help determine like what stage somebody is at as they're working with you or asking you questions and how that framework is super helpful. Do you notice um, certain stages that people might be in as being more challenging when they're going through um, loss or grief? For example, is it much more difficult for even a, an older adult who may be, not, I don't want to say stuck, but in, in stage two, like, they haven't began to question. They're still um, maybe very much just kind of adhering to what they were told. 
never never doubted anything and and maybe had the privilege of living a relatively easy life in the sense of they didn't have to suffer as much as other people have and i'm just kind of curious if you've noticed like certain stages maybe being harder uh for them versus other stages the interesting thing about that is it goes in both directions. And there's been a lot of research on this. One of the most famous studies is Pargament's religious coping scale. And if you look at the research on positive and negative religious coping, it kind of comes out 50-50. And of course, all research is skewed. So, you know, you can find lots of research that says, yeah, stage two theology is harmful. And you can find just as much saying that it's helpful. So a good example, I think th this is one of Fowler's cases. Um, you know, a woman was talking about someone in her life who died, and she, and this was an older woman, like probably in her 60s, saying, well, you know, he's in heaven now with the angels and baby Jesus. Mm. And so this woman still thought of Jesus as baby Jesus, and her loved one is in heaven with the angels. Well, she was, I, I'm just speculating now because I don't know the whole story about her. Um, she's not necessarily going to have prolonged mourning disorder or complicated grief. She found a way to make meaning of it that is helpful for her. And mm -hmm. the whole point of grief processing is to make meaning of your loss. And if your meaning is that your lost loved one is floating on a cloud with Jesus playing a harp or whatever, that's fine. You're fine. You know, I would never take that away from someone. The only time I would take that away from someone is, number one, if they asked me to, um, if they, you know, found it troublesome, such as my loved one, you know, died from suicide and he's in hell, is if it's causing undue distress for the person. And they're exhibiting the symptoms of complicated grief, which are, you know, there's a whole list of official symptoms like obsessing and perseverating on the loss event um, shutting out emotionally, you know, shutting out people, not accepting social support, um, not doing self-care, you know, drinking too much, or sleeping all day. And some of that is fine up to a point. But, you know, if it's a woman in her 60s whose husband died and she's doing those behaviors six months later, that's too long. For an older person with a heart condition and expected death, by six months, she should be back socializing again, maybe changing the house around, maybe giving his clothes away, doing the steps that you do. Um, you know, and that's a whole other conversation about what what does complicated grief look like. And I could give you the bullet points if you want them. But um, if the theological belief is not contributing to that, then they're fine. You know, I have a, a very good um, client. Uh, who's in my grief group, who is a Christian pastor. And this woman lost both of her parents and both of her children and her husband in an 18-month period. All of them. Nobody left in her family. Wow. And she is very Christian. And she believes in Jesus and the angels in heaven. And she is one of the coolest people I know. She is, uh, is having a beautifully healthy grief experience her theology has been constructed in a way that is helpful to her mm. so it's not always bad yeah um i'll tell you like with my experience uh in the past i had I had a moment where um my, my my son was born 
as a micro preemie. So he was born at 24 weeks and it was like one pound, two mm -hmm. ounces. And so I, we were living in the NICU at that time. And every day we weren't sure, like, was he going to survive? And, um, and then on top of that, like not knowing what the future would hold. And so we were going, we were like every day kind of like, is he, you know, we were just grieving like the entire time and not knowing would he ever get out? If he does survive, what we're going to be, what are there going to be the complications? And then it just, it, just walking outside and seeing other parents with their kids was like heartbreaking. Like I couldn't even touch my baby. Um, I understand. And and so during during that moment, I was going through like a tremendous amount of grief and loss uh, for not having what I thought would be a normal uh, birth and uh, what I what I saw experienced by lots of friends and family. Um, but on top of that, for me, um, I began to have a, I guess the term would be like a deconstruction moment, where everything that I had thought about God and His love and care for me. And for those around me, and I, I had a very kind of selfish view of this, um, was kind of crumbling around me. Um, and so it, it was, I was kind of going through uh, a lot emotionally, like with my own son, without trying to support my wife, failing miserably. I'm just trying to like hold it together. And I'm not even sure how I can support my wife during this time. Uh, so I was like failing as a husband feeling I was a failed father. And then on top of that, feeling like I had failed God in my lack of faith in him anymore, uh, in my experience. And so I was like kind of juggling like all of that. And I was, uh, when it came to faith in God, I was like losing it. Like I just couldn't, I couldn't hold on to what I thought anymore about who God was. Um, and so I was wondering about, like, for those who maybe were in my position, uh, going through those, like, going through a loss, going through bereavement about your loved one, and then on top of that, um, having to dismiss some theology that has been actually harmful to you, um, and then you're having to, like, very quickly, or I don't, I don't not, not quickly, but you're having to, like, reconstruct something else to hold on to during those moments. So I'm kind of curious, like how you would guide somebody uh, during that point. Would you, um, do you start with like the, the actual, because uh, the, the, like, actually I'll, I'll ask you this, like where would you even begin to talk with somebody who's kind of dealing with these like separate categories of grief all happening at once? Yeah. So, one thing I would say, I'm going to use just you as an example. If I was the chaplain at that hospital at the NICU and you asked me for some guidance on this, yeah. I would say to you that the space in which you have no beliefs is one of the most enlightened places you can be. So here you are with the uh, what we call the assumptive world. The assumptive world has just fallen apart. The assumption is I'm going to have a baby, I'm going to have a house, and the baby's going to be fine. And all these assumptions, which are all, we all have them, and they're all subject to disintegration 
at any moment. So you're experiencing this disintegration. In fact, the shamans have a process of this. They call it the dismemberment process, mm. where you actually do a visualization where you actually imagine your arms and legs coming off and holes and where just space and light is going through the holes and there's just like nothing holding you together and you you disintegrate. I would support you learning how to be comfortable in that space. You don't need to have a belief system right now. Are you able to just sit and be without one? And the only one you need is to just be rooted in this love that you have for this baby and for your wife. And, and I would give you some trauma processes for being in present time. For example, a real simple one, you can tolerate anything for five seconds. So you count to five when you're really freaking out. And then when you're done, you count to five again. And you realize, oh, those five seconds just went by and I tolerated it. Mm. Can I tolerate another five? Maybe I can do 10. Maybe I can do 60. And you practice tolerating being in pain in present time so that's a whole process as a chaplain i don't often get a chance to work that closely with somebody but that's what i would do with you and i would also just make myself a place to listen so that you can just spew out all your theological questions and all your fears and your doubts and your stuff just give it to me i'll hold it for you you know that's what we're supposed to do we're supposed to just listen sometimes that's all you need in fact most of the time it is you just needed to be able to articulate all that and have somebody who would listen to you without judging you, without trying to talk you in or out of anything. So, you know, you obviously aren't going to go, hopefully you're not going to go to your priest or your pastor and tell them about this crisis of faith because they're going to try to talk you back into it. And that's a really good definition of where a chaplain is. We will never do that. And if you ever see a chaplain who does, they shouldn't be a chaplain. So, so that would be the one thing. And then depending on, you know, how much you wanted to open your mind to other ways of thinking, I might suggest a book to read. I might talk with you about, well, you know, here's how other cultures look at this. Mm. Like if your baby is going to die, you know, that soul came in just for this purpose. Maybe all that soul was here to do was to get you to change your thinking. Some souls come in and just to sponsor the growth of others. I might say something like that, which is a very metaphysical perspective. And I would just have to discern if you were the kind of person I could say that to. I lost a child myself. My son died when he was 16. And it happened to be exactly 16 years ago right now. And I actually, that's how I made meaning of it. Because of him, because of his death specifically, I do the work that I do now. So I feel like whoever he is in the universe, wherever he is, that he and I came in together so that I could be doing this work right now. Now, I don't know what he's doing, but I'm sure he's doing something, something similar, but I don't know. So that's my metaphysical meaning making. So in answer to your question, it would all depend on where the person was at on Fowler's scale. So if you were at stage two at Fowler's scale, you'd be probably thinking that you were being punished, which it sounds like you were thinking, you know, that mm -hmm. your faith wasn't strong enough and that this poor little baby was being punished for your sins, which is a biblical idea. Where actually Jesus, it was more of an Old Testament idea and Jesus kind of 
turn that around. Um, it all depends on where the person is. And so a big, you know, part of the skill that we have is being able to assess somebody. Like, where are they on this scale? And most people, most adults in America, especially now in this period of Christian nationalism, are somewhere between fallers stage two and stage three, which is pretty much, you know, the critical thinking developmental level of a 10 year old. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that's pretty much where I was even. A, and at that time I was uh, mm -hmm. like 30, I was 30 years old and mm -hmm. um, not to say I didn't question, but I didn't want to question if that makes sense. Like I wanted just to be, happy and not have to think too hard um, only thing i would question would be like what doctrines do i believe right i was more focused on yeah. apologetics and theology and questioning theological viewpoints but not wanting to question my belief in the existence of god and, and the existence of evil i didn't really want to go there that makes sense i was very much in, in that yes yes i was raised in a um fundamental church environment since I was very little. So my, only thing I ever knew was my church community. I went to s church and school at the same place. So you yeah. can imagine like my community, my friends, we were all part of the same kind of system. And so yes. um, all my leaders, all the mentors, they were all Christian and believed the same way. And so, um, uh, that was kind of the system, my worldview. Um, and so when, you know, I, I did start to question like theology and I moved around to different churches, but I was still very much kind of um, within uh, a Christian evangelical tradition. And so it wasn't until that and, moment. That, yeah. And what does that tradition teach you about questioning? I think um, that's a great question. It wasn't really brought up too much. Um, I think the only thing that was really brought up was, yeah, it was, yeah, yeah. It wasn't really, it was more about uh, know how to defend your faith. That was the emphasis, you know, to give every man an answer as the verse says uh, for the faith and the hope mm -hmm. that lies within you. So if anything, any sort of questioning was all about how do you defend it? Um, exactly. Through apologetics, right? It wasn't about, and if you had your own kind of dark night of the soul, um, pastors were there to pray for you and encourage you and to and talk you back, you back in. Yeah, like talk you back into it. Yeah. Until it got to the point where I was then talking to my pastor, like, I can't believe this anymore. I can't. I can't believe. And I was also in a very, uh, towards the end, at that point, I was in a, very reformed Calvinistic church um, where um, it was being taught that you know, all things had been ordained and planned by God. And even this most hurtful, traumatic suffering, that was the plan by a loving God. And I was just falling apart. And I was like, I can't, I can't do this anymore. I can't believe this. I was deeply suffering theologically from my beliefs and, everything like that. Um, yeah, so it was a very, very rough moment and it changed me forever. Yeah, of course, of course it did. And that's good. We want it to change you forever because mm -hmm. if it didn't, 
you'd be you would not have been able to process that loss in a healthy way. So, so my question to you is, um, if the answer is only apologetics and nothing else, and they say, you know, everything is ordained and, you know, God has a plan and that this is what was supposed to happen. Okay, I can I can actually translate that into through my metaphysical lens into something that I find acceptable. But what did they say about it? Like, so you'd say, okay, so this is God's plan, you know, um, why? What's the meaning? I'll accept that this is God's plan and dot, 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 what comes next? That's the part that they don't give you. Now, what was, so if you said, okay, so if it was me and my child had this terminal disease and he died and the priest said, or the pastor, you know, oh, well, God has a plan. Everything is preordained. I'd say, then what's the plan? What happens next? So the plan is for my kid to die. Then what? That's always the question I would ask. And if you ask that question, what would they say to you? Hmm. I think it always goes back to it's a mystery kind of answer. Um, Right. right? It's a mystery. We don't don't know. Yeah, it's a mystery. And we'll find out later. Right. So that goes back to questioning. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So so it's just circular reasoning all the time. So you just ask this really great question and the answer is don't ask. Yeah, essentially, exactly. Um, yeah. And actually, uh, one of your papers I was reading, uh, I think it was called, I have it here. Oh, yeah. You have a paper called Grief as a Mystical Journey, Fowler Stages mm-hmm. of Faith Development and Their Relation to Post-Traumatic Growth. You start off the paper, it just drew me in immediately. Um about asking that question, why would a loving God cause this traumatic event? And I'm sure and you mentioned like, this is the question, this is something that you get as a chaplain. Um, can you talk about that question and how you kind of yeah. navigate that with others? There's actually a really good answer to that question. And the answer is another question, you know, why would a loving God do this? And the answer is, it depends what you think God is. So when you tell me that a loving God allowed this terrible thing to happen to you, I'm going to come back to you and say, tell me about this loving God. What is that? What is God? And then you're going to re- you're going to parrot back to me everything you learned in Sunday school. And you get, we're going to end up talking about a man in the sky with a control panel, you know, controlling everything. I mean, it comes back to this really infantile Fowler stage two image of God. The fact is there's no such thing as a loving God. There's no such thing as a hateful God or a jealous God. There's no such thing as that kind of God. That doesn't exist. What is God? You know, that's where you have to start with a question like that. Well, so somebody might say, well, you know, God created the world And, you know, we're his creations and he loves us. And I'm like, why do you think that? Why does this creative force, this energy, this big bang energetic force have to love us? You know, I mean, why can't it just be neutral? Well, because, you know, he loved us so much, he gave his only begotten son. And at that point, like, oh, no, we can't even have a conversation if you're going to go there. And so it's all people are just like spewing doctrine when they're asking questions like that. And that's what's really sad. So a lot of this, too, is 
We see a lot of this in research on religiosity. It's really problematic because if you look at the research, even Pew Research, which is really good, uh, the way they ask the questions, they'll interview 3,000 people and say, do you believe in God? And they'll give you an, an answer like 70% of people believe in God. Well, that's a stupid answer because first you have to define God. So the questions have to have all these subtexts, right, and and nuances. It's like, do you believe that there's a a human-like figure, a a being that kind of resembles humans, that is planning everything for us? That's one definition. You know, I mean, that's how those questions should be asked. And then it should be like, forty percent of people believe that God is a being a spirit like an angel or a ghost or something that looks like us and so the uh, research on religiosity has not caught up to this yet so that's why you know uh, we're so stuck in this and we can't answer why would a loving god let this happen well there you mean why would the natural forces of ebb and flow of existence let this happen because shit happens that's why I mean, really, that's, to me, that's what God is. You know, it's just, it's just breathing in and out. It's just the natural ebb and flow of the energy of existence. I mean, that's not my idea. The philosophers have been saying this forever. But if you look at it that way as this neutral force of creation, then you can't ask that question anymore. And then the question is, why did this happen? And so if you go back to humans in primitive state, you know, we ask the questions like, why was there a flood that wiped out our village? Why did the, the leopard come in the village and eat the baby? Whatever. And, you know, we make up theologies and cosmologies to explain this. And then we go, wow, you know, there was a leopard and it came into our village and ate somebody's baby. Let's go out and get some clay and make a statue of a leopard and worship the leopard god so that this won't happen again. Maybe the leopard spirit is angry at us. And we start creating this stuff. This is where all religion came from, is trying to grapple with stuff that happens that we don't like. We don't do this when good things happen. Mm -hmm. You know, well, I guess we do. You know, like maybe you kill something and you eat it and you have food for the mm -hmm. village and you make a little icon of that deer and you worship the deer. Thank you for bringing us food. Of course you do it when good things happen. But it mostly comes out of trying to grapple with loss. Mm. Dr. Daniel, um, before we go, would you give, you know, for those of us who maybe are interested in pursuing uh, serving as an interfaith chaplain in the future, uh, what would be some tips, some advice you'd share for those who are interested in this work? Well, um, the gold standard of training for chaplains is called CPE, clinical pastoral education. And that is true if you're gonna be a prison chaplain or a corporate chaplain or any kind, mostly medical. Um, and uh, this is, in my opinion, absolutely required. Um, not all chaplains have this, but I believe that they all should because that's where you learn the part about leaving your beliefs behind and being religiously neutral with people and not leading or guiding or educating them, but just how to sit there and be present and just be a source of support and listening. Um, 
unfortunately, okay, so to do CPE, generally you should have at least a bachelor's degree in a related field, social work, religious studies, counseling, anything. Uh, and then you go and you can do like a one unit CPE, which is four months uh, training in a hospital, or you can do a whole year. It's all different ways to do it. You can do it at any hospital where you live. You don't have to move somewhere else like I had to do when I did it 12 years ago. Um, uh, yet some chaplains don't have this. And so some hospices will uh, hire the local pastor from the local church and almost always those people will not be very good chaplains because, mm. and it is really common how misunderstood chaplaincy is. When you say chaplain, somebody gets an image of Father Mulcahy from MASH. Uh, you know, some of your <laughs> listeners probably aren't even old enough to know what that is, but, you know, a priest with a Bible and a cross. Um, chaplains are not pastors. Uh, they might be technically have that credential, they might be ordained as something, but that's a chaplain is not the same as a pastor. Yet, even in the professional world, you know, I've seen plenty of hospices where their chaplain is the pastor from the local church down the street. And this chaplain has no CPE training and does mm -hmm. proselytize uh, to patients. Wow. It happens all the time. Yeah especially in the South and places like that. It doesn't happen in Portland, Oregon very much where I live. Mm. So yeah, that's how you become a chaplain. Definitely do CPE. Just look it up, Google clinical pastoral education. You'll find tons of information. Awesome. Well, Dr. Daniel, thank you so much for, for being on the show. Um, where can people learn more about you, find your work, and also learn more about the conferences coming up? So the conference is deathgriefandbelief.com and you can go to my grief support page which is spiritualityandgrief.com or just google me Terry Daniel and you'll find all kinds of stuff. But the conference is really my big Okay, awesome. And I'll put uh, links in the in the podcast notes and also on the blog and the YouTube video. Awesome. Wonderful. Thank you so much Dr. Daniel. Thank you. It was great to talk to you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Dogato Podcast. As always, you can get the show notes, video links, and resources mentioned in this episode on my blog at mikedelgado.org. You can also get updates to new shows and get access to the full archive of past shows by following the Dogato Podcast on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And if you ever have suggestions for future topics or guests you want to hear from on this show, please reach out. My email is delgado at ucla.edu. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll chat more next time.